Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I And I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome back to part three of The Stages Conversation with Peter Cousins. In this finale episode, we explore Peter's pursuits following a triumphant series of turns on musical theatre stages. His passion and belief in the musical as an essential theatrical form to be respected and celebrated led him to the birth of Kookaburra, a company providing Australian creatives and performers an opportunity to construct great works in the canon and build new repertoire. He expands further on the joys and challenges of life as a creative force in this candid episode of the Stages podcast. What do you think Cameron could possibly have been warning you about? I think that just the, the, the difficulties of, of doing what he does, and he recognised too... And he'd got out of Australia by then in terms of being significantly involved. And he'd created a culture and a way of doing things, which part of what we were doing ended up sort of trying to do that in a smaller scale, which didn't kind of work. But also he, he, he read, he read the, um, the signs of a changing audience, a changing tastes, changing things that were happening in Australia. Obviously, Australia wasn't, a vi- wasn't viable for him anymore, and there were reasons for that at the time. I don't know what they were, but he, he said that to me two years before, and he sort of said it to me again, that, um, that things, had, things had changed, the culture had changed, the, the, um, that those days were gone in a way, and what I was creating just may not do what you think it's going to do, which is... And what I was trying to do was fill the vacuum between what he did and f- small, fringy, co-opy stuff that that was, you know, happening and community stuff. Fill the fill the, and be able to do musicals at a scale that that you know have production values and people got paid, but we're not um, we're not on that scale. But doing musicals that were not. In, the, in, in his style, which was reproductions of originals, what I wanted to do was have reinterpretations of, of classic stuff and Australian stuff and, um, or, in, or in, in initial interpretations of Australian musicals, et cetera. Um, that, was the, that was the plan. So everything was about the director coming with a, a, their own creative um, concept for, for, for each show and not get caught up in doing reproductions of, of, of already created stuff. So designers, directors, lighting designers, costume designers, actors all got, weren't working to a blueprint. 
that was the plan because what had happened in Australia, Australian musical theatre was that there was so much, there was, everything was about a blueprint. Everything was about what was being done before and we were just importing and importing this, this, this kind of stuff. And I was, I was certainly, and I think Showboat did it to me. I, I, I'd gone to Canada to, to Toronto to learn the role with the Canadian cast and it, you know, it was really acting by numbers and I was just, because in many ways I was going to slot in like a jigsaw piece into the Australian company and uh, that, that it really, I was really disheartened and I, I, it was probably the worst theatre experience of my life doing that show. As much as I loved all the beautiful people in it, it was just, just wasn't the thing. You hear that from so many artists who go into those, those those franchise productions. There is no opportunity to to be creative. You are effectively a warm prop who has to replicate the original performances. Yeah, and and in many ways, I I had been lucky because I'd worked with directors in in some of those musicals who made you feel as though it was all your own work. <laughs> so I hadn't I hadn't really quite caught that um even doing the phantom which was which was at times you know very much you've got to be in that position because that's where the lights are and that's where that's happening and this is what happens to you then and that's what she does and that's what happens then. so there was that um but I, I kind of bought into it all until I got to that showbert situation there was something about it that I kind of cracked because I'd really thrived on it before and I love the long runs and I know actors sometimes hate it but I thrived on it I love the the the, the sort of minutiae of of second by second and it's like like playing in a sport really where your timing gets so precise that you seem to have so much time to do anything you know the way you you strike a bat on a ball um, um, you just I seem to have I seem to have found time to move from from idea to note to note to all this kind of stuff used to go through my head that um, I loved experimenting with and, and playing with on stage. And, um, and that comes with, you know, hyper familiarity, but it does release you to do stuff in the, in the millisecond that is, that is thrilling. <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily thrilling for the audience, but it was certainly thrilling for me. Um, yeah. I hoped it was thrilling for the audience at times, <laughs> but that was my that was my sort of headspace then. Um, so uh, and you know I, I learned a lot, and on reflection, I I learned a lot of things that you know I, I didn't I don't necessarily believe anymore. But uh, at the time, you know, I was very committed to a whole lot of stuff, which which included this this idea of of trying to break free from from the blueprinted musical. I didn't see that. That I didn't see that. I expect regathering of Australian creative forces didn't have to happen in a fringe or co-op world. That that I believed that we could find an audience who'd, who'd trust um, these new creations. Well, Kookaburra commenced with lofty ambition and and fabulous intentions. Uh, their goal was to be a world-leading producer, developer, and advocate of musical theatre, and to affirm musical theatre's central role in the cultural and social life of Australia. It's now about 12 years since uh, the company ceased operation. Are you able to look back now with, with uh, perspective and, and sort of recognise what perhaps went wrong? 
Uh, uh, yes, I, I'm. I'm pretty pretty clear about about um, what what didn't happen and what could have happened and what should have happened. Um, I've certainly reflected on on even even lofty statements like that. I sort of I sort of still believe could be true. I sort of aligned that whole concept with the I with with the nature of sport. <laughs> and there is no reason why um, you know that the and it, as it turned out, I discovered that that next to sport, there are vast numbers members of the population who saw um going to musicals was their second choice of, of how to spend their leisure dollar. So after a bit of research, you know, I discovered things like that, which I found kind of interesting. But it, it, it had to be at a certain level. And, and often what I discovered it was, you know, one night out a year to see a mega musical. That was sort of... That was well, there was, of, there was um, no one championing the form, really, except community theatres and the big commercial theatres. There was sort of nothing in between. Even the, the, the subsidised companies, you know, in the time of Richard Ware and Wayne Harrison, Sydney Theatre Company, who had musicals as part of their repertoire, that all seemed to disappear as well. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, I think that's probably maybe what Cameron was warning me about, but but that 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 vacuum and... Um, you know, I certainly engaged with all the community theatres too in Sydney, uh, and to to try and to to gain their support really. But I, but in retrospect, maybe they weren't that didn't want to be that supportive because they were putting on musicals of a pretty good standard um, themselves, with with large large enough uh, budgets and and cleverly cleverly done to be able to um, to hold hold the audiences you know in in those those areas. And if they weren't supportive and Understandably, they probably weren't, because um, many of the some of the productions we were doing, they would probably happily do, like Pippin and Little Women and um, Company, and you know. Um, so, but on reflection, the the plan was that you know the company would land whole, like 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 a spaceship into the into the theatre landscape, um, into the musical theatre landscape, and say, "Here we are, um, aren't we great?" <laughs> This is this is something you all should all should embrace, and let's get on with it, because you know we're fulfilling we're filling this vacuum, and that was that was sort of the message. Did you go uh, too big too soon? Do you think? That were, you know those first productions, Pippin Company, obviously had enormous budgets. You were playing in sort of mainstream theaters. Would it have been better to have built the company up? To a certain extent, yes. That seems to be the 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 usual way, isn't it? That that the companies um, um, you know start off in 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 sort of small low rent um, spaces and and build reputations and um, acquire um, you know support and an audience over time and you know four or five years later does anything happen? What is that the history of the Griffin Theatre Company? Um, is it the history of Belvoir? It's certainly the history of Belvoir coming out of Nimrod. Well, the Griffin has remained basically the same size it was 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I, I really wasn't encouraged by those sorts of stories of, of, of the basement theatre company that, 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 you know, the old Fitzroy, those sort of things. I suspect I had 
I had greater ambitions because I believe because because commercial because musical theatre is only driven by the fact that it's commercial. It's it's its nature is is and that's why people get frustrated with it from an artistic point of view um, to a certain extent because it is driven by this need to have to be accessible and to be liked to be popular that is that is by definition really what music musical theater has uh, has has been that that being the case um i didn't see how that style of of growth was going to be seated, suited I, I preferred the idea of landing whole wholly formed with some of the best actors best performers best musicians best directors um, in the country doing what they do um, now the biggest mistake was exactly what you said was we were starting to be <laughs> and, and instead of asking those those creative people to work for next to you know, um, you know, next to next to smaller small amounts of money, working in in different sorts of spaces, and not having that huge battle with places like the Sydney Theatre down at the Sydney Theatre Company or the Theatre Royal. I mean, it was like hell on earth, just kind of because it's where sort of, Pippin premiered, and then your company played Theatre Royal, and then you we were, we were supposed, yeah, and we and we were supposed to we we were going to open down at the um, Sydney Theatre as well. We had lots of conversations with Rob Brookman and and the theatre there, and um, just all those those costs sort of didn't help. But, but putting all that that's not really what I mean. Is I, I, when I first created the model, and I spent ages with this um, wonderful guy from the Australia Council, and we worked for about eight or nine months with a with a laptop. And he, he he was a financial guy, and he created we created models for musicals that, uh, that were budgeted around about four hundred thousand bucks for the whole thing. By the time we got to opening night of Pippin, it was you know over a million. Um, so I I sort of betrayed the model very early on, and the money we lost on Pippin um, was the same amount we we ended up without at the end after two and a half years. So we actually never recovered. Um, from and and we never found the audience uh, that we that we thought was there. We believed was there, and and so in retrospect, I if only we had remained at that at that on that on that financial model, and we went to we went to different spaces. Um, there was the 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 where we were the Australia Australia Theatre in in um, across the road from. From Mark Foy's, the the um, Downing Centre was a wonderful space, which had been a theatre, and we could have slapped up some some tiered seating and created a, a little space on a par with some of those little theatres in New York, and and created some interesting stuff in there. Um, but you know, but you know, there were problems with all of that. I those sorts of ideas, and they they weren't part of the model. The model was finding. Um, mainstream spaces to sort of make sense of the corporate support we had which was huge you know two and a half million dollars was raised and so if it felt like we needed to match that but in retrospect again those conversations could have been had with those people and um i don't think they would have withdrawn their support such was their their heartfelt desire for success so these things um I, and also, I think um, I wasn't inclusive 
I felt I felt on the back foot. I felt I was I got to the stage very early on that I I was sort of defending what I was doing from from people, um, and that gave me a bit of a it made me a bit paranoid and a bit bit started to put the walls up. Instead of what I would do now was be be utterly inclusive and bring people in and gain their their understanding of what was going on and, and get them included in the some decision making and some ideas and thoughts and have them very much and get the um, the industry to own it in some form or other um, and you know that was that was a mistake I think it was very much a it felt I'm sure to the, to the outside that it was somehow a closed shop and um, even though we had we had sort of events and things to try and make that work that somehow I missed I missed a memo somewhere along the line which said um, ask the right people to come through the door and talk to them about what they think um, uh, uh, but another part of me was set, was saying well you know most of these ideas are usually driven by one person's drive enthusiasm and chutzpah and I expect I you know maybe I believe my own publicity <laughs> and um, and kind of went down that track if there was anyone that was going to hopefully make it work, it was somebody like you that had the profile and considerable runs on the board as far as musical theatre goes. I mean, even, you know, in the beginning, uh, having your name attached to the company name, you know, Peter Cousins Kookaburra, John Ballard done it with the Shakespeare Company. Um, it seemed like the right thing to do. But I guess there's a an element of the community also who see that as arrogance or like to to knock it you know we get into that that tall poppy syndrome you know sort of you're getting a bit above your boots cousins so people would come in with the boot which they did sadly um yeah but it I mean, needn't it, have gone it, that way no and i yeah I, I don't know whether that's i mean i think that that's that i, I think that's that sure there would have been that an element of that and and certainly John the John Bell model was very clear in 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 our heads in terms of um, th that kind of branding and that was certainly certainly our marketing um, people th sort of thought all that was was the way to go initially um, and then it, it just um, it just it then again became something that had to be defended and so that that didn't help but also. Also, it was the beginning of social media and social media, you know, particularly on things like AussieTheatre.com at the time where everyone was anonymous, um, you know, it, that that didn't help. Um, that, that was a, a difficult time. But, it, but again, that that isn't, I don't think that's, that's all peripheral really to the, to the, to, I think the one, and if, you know, if I want to be arrogant, I expect I shouldn't have been the the artistic director, and it wasn't my choice really to do that. I didn't want to actually lead the company in that way. I wanted to, if it, if I was going to lead the company, I wanted to lead it as a performer, because mm. that's where my skills were. My skills weren't in doing this, and I, if I'd handed it over to, or you know, I would have handed it over to someone like Gail, but 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 you know, she was going through her own stuff at, at that time and so or or a Stuart Maunder or a, or, a, or a you know and and just being um being a performer and 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 which is where I was sort of heading to with um 
Floyd Collins. I was wanting to sort of get out of that, but the, those plans didn't kind of work out that way. Everything should have been smaller. You're quite right. Everything should have. I, and, and if I if if we do it now, where everyone is used to working for nothing, they would have. You know, we we could have cre created with two and a half million dollars behind us um, uh, a, a little theatre company that that paid enough, that paid equity rates and, and, and held everything down and had, had some money in the bank constantly instead of sort of blowing it all in the first, in the setup and the first production, which was really, when you think about it, and a bit, you know. So, um, yeah, that's, that, would be, uh, that would be my feeling that um, you're right, too big, too fast. Um, Maybe some of the, the repertoire was a bit obtuse to... Uh... To the audience that yeah, you were possibly. hoping to garner, possibly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and look, you know, the desire, the, the choice was to try and to, to start off with Australians with an Australian musical. Gary Young was very keen for us to do um, that uh, musical about Sideshow Alley. Sideshow Alley, yeah, um, and you know, maybe that would have been an interesting way to go, just 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 go bang with some Australian stuff. But I think you'd have to do it as at a, again at a small scale and not spend the money. And, find a, and just find a commercial way to do it. And that, that's what I think, um, if I had my time over, I'd, um, I'd find some space that was, wasn't, wasn't in any way like the kind of spaces that, that, that costs so much just to turn on the air conditioning. I'd, I'd, I'd be asking actors and performers to work for minimum, but because they're all used to it now, um, it, it's all seen as opportunity as against livelihood. And I was trying to provide livelihood, and that's that's it's a, it's a different thing. Um, yes, that's the thing, isn't it? Competition is so fierce amongst uh, performers that um, it's just the opportunity to do it to be hopefully seen yeah. in a showcase. So yeah, so sometimes they put yeah opportunity before livelihood. Yeah, and and I think that's 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 the that's been the problem for I think actors and and musical theatre people for 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 ages in Australia. I remember reading an article that Carol Burns wrote before she died about how that how during the 70s they'd worked so hard to get the public to appreciate and understand that actors were a profession and they had a profession and they were professionally paid and they should be professionally paid. And she lamented this whole move towards the the um the opportunity over livelihood. Um, and that's come with that's come with, of course, the just the overwhelming amount of people who, who are coming out of drama schools, and, and you know, I'm just about to start a, a diploma myself, um, um, teaching and you know, creating a, a whole new opportunity for for kids to learn about um, about uh, being a, a, an artist. Um, so, you know, we are overwhelmed by by people searching for jobs and not enough opportunities. So. COVID may maybe maybe wash wash a bit of that away. Who knows? Um, but it's washed away a lot of producers and things. So um, I think what I'm trying to do now is create a situation where we can teach young people how to be entrepreneurial and independent as artists, and use the use the technology, use the the opportunities to to be seen around the world um, in small niches, but enough. That's bigger than Australia, but but enough to kind of sustain your career in, in your calling. And let's face it, a sustained career is not a full-time performing gig. 
it's probably 20 or maybe 30% of your time. The rest of it is finding out, finding ways to sustain it. And it's either working in a pub, it's either teaching, it's either doing, you know, whatever it is. But it still doesn't delegitimize the career. It is still the career, even though it might be being sustained by a whole lot of other stuff. Finding ways to support your habit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I don't think, I think that is, we just have to recognize and buy into the fact that that is, that is the career for most. So, you know, some, and I had, I had 12 years of doing nothing other than performing. I didn't have to do anything. In fact, 20 years, extremely lucky. And um, there were, there were, a, there were a few, you know, some others who had that experience themselves, but um, in, but even so in between all some of those times I was, you know, doing peripheral stuff to, to help sustain that um, career. So Kookaburra in, in many ways in my kind of journey was trying to find ways to give livelihood um, to, to that. Um, the mistake was made was to just try too hard to make it um, um, a, a live, a, you know, a, a, a good livelihood for some for people instead of just being totally strict about how, how all that worked. And also just not being responsible, finding a better leader, finding a better a, a, a business, a proper, um, you know, leader of, of a, a producer who could actually had those skills. I didn't have those skills. How did you um, seduce Stephen Sondheim to Sydney? I wrote to him and, and, and told him about the company said he hadn't been out here for 35 years. And Amy McGrath, who had brought him out here back in for the Seymour Centre back in sort of 1978, was, was also a theatre conference, wasn't it? With um, yeah. yeah, Hal came oh, out. And, and, um, yeah. 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 Ellen Luna. And um, some of the, some, some, a couple of others came out. And Amy had been sort of responsible for a lot of that. I think um, I said I was doing company. Um, he and I, I think we had we had corresponded, uh, as I tended to do. I mean, I'd corresponded with Hal for years, even before I met him, um, and doing a fan. I'd corresponded with with Trevor Nunn and with um, and and Richard Harris, obviously, um, and others over the years. And and Stephen had been someone. So I'd and Michael Feinstein's another one. So he he just came back and said, yeah, but. You know, we need to. We need. We had. We got Qantas on board to 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 pay for two first class tickets, and um, you know, it, it it was one of those things that didn't come without a cost. And um, <laughs> one would one would ask. One would say, was it was it um, was the cost worth it? Well, as it turned out, no, it wasn't worth it because what happened was it corrupted. I expect the whole relationship between performer and and composer to the point where um, performers having met the composer and obviously had a good time felt they then had every right to um, loyally inform him um, if if the show wasn't in their opinion being being cared for um, <laughs> in a way which um you know, he, he would he would like um we're hence, talking about the incident of course uh where we're talking about this cease and desist that was issued to the company 
the, the night after those emails were sent to him or that email signed by all the cast, I think, except for one or two, to him to say that the production had been um, butchered. If I if I if I had ceased and desist, I mean, jobs were gone, and um, I presumably I would have had to pay the cast out. I expect I don't know, but they would have lost that gig, and and God knows what would happen. But instead, I was asked to apologise to the world um, in the national newspapers, and I'm not kidding. Uh, to the world, like every composer and musician. Um, and lyricist in the world. Such was the <laughs> extraordinary response. Just to give the background to the, to the listener, um, company was playing, and uh, one of the actors was was ill one night, and so you made the the producer's decision, the boss decision, to just cut a character and a musical number. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, and. Um, you know, I sent the musical director and the director in. I was in Melbourne, actually, at, at down at seeing the um, another production down there, and I got the phone call at sort of six or so, and so I got the director and the musical director to go in, and they happily rehearsed a way of of keeping it open because we had five or six hundred at the door, and you know, at the theatre royal, and you know there was no way we could afford to close down, given our desire to keep the, the doors open and, the, and some money running in and being able to pay, pay for things. So this wasn't an unusual act for shows. We've done it in, in, in many shows that I've been in where things happen like people get sick halfway through. So their song has to be cut or things have to be rearranged. Um, some people get sick very close to the opening thing and if there's and no understudies, well, you've just got to, you've got to shore it up and make it up as you go along and, and see what you can do to keep the, the show open. That is sort of a producer's role um, and also keeps the royalties running in for the composer. But in this case, there was, you know, a loaded gun that had come from the cast for some odd reason. Um, well, I, I probably do know the reason, um, but I won't, I, won't, I won't go into that. But there was this, I don't know, this, um, again, I said, as I say, I've, I started to have to defend myself against all sorts of things with that company. Um, and that particular group of people were, were fairly to toxic. And, and, and bringing Sondheim out hadn't helped that. Um, I think they felt pretty good about what was going on and, and their relationship with with Stephen and um, and their and their connection with him, and um, interestingly enough, I heard some time later that that Neil Armfield's production of Sweeney Todd in in Chicago, I think, was closed down by by Sondheim because because I think Neil rewrote a, a lyric or or changed something in it, and um, he he stopped the tour as a result. So he, he he had form, but I think it was I think it was after this. So I was left to apologise to the world, which... Um... That must gut you. What, what does that do to, to a creative, you know, your role as the producer, but also as a bloke, to have that company of actors? Not turn on you, but, but, but do that, take that into their own hands and, and then being forced to, to apologise so publicly. It's an odd betrayal. Um, 
it's, and it's not, a, not only a betrayal of, of the hand that's feeding you, but also just a betrayal of the nature of, dare I say it again, um, showbiz. Um, there's no business like showbiz. And, and we, we keep going. We, we, we keep those lights on and we keep that audience entertained and we make the show happen, even if there is a moment where the, we're missing a character or missing a song. It, it's, it's, you know, the show goes on as that's, that's isn't that what we, what we say, what we believe in. Yes, yeah, so it is. I must admit, it's it 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 um, it took me years and years and years to get over that betrayal, um, and you know the the humiliation of it. And I've been in many shows, as I said, that we've we've done similar sorts of things, or the directors had to come in and do stuff to to keep it on, and the you know the thought of writing to the composer and saying, you know, let me tell you what they did to your show last night. Well, you know, you could say that about shows that have been performed by terrible performers. I could be writing to the composer and saying, you should see so-and-so singing your song last night. Falling. Imagine it. I think you know, I cut so. you off before. Did you say you, you, you had phoned Cameron? Yes, I phoned Cameron and I phoned, um, and I got and John Robertson, um, to try and broker some sort of um, compromise or some something because one, it was going to cost a fortune to put in full page, full page apologies ads like a ad. So uh, as it turned out, um, I ended up printing I ha in in I think I think it was in the Sydney Morning Herald a smaller apology to the audience and musicians and to and to Sondheim and um, whoever for um, giving them not the full show on that, on that particular night, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then we, uh, we closed for a couple of nights, sent people away. And then we reopened and sort of limped to the end of, end of the season. Thanks for, um, for revisiting that. I, I don't, prod and pry for for any sort of uh, uh personal pleasure or anything i i just these, these podcasts are, are also an historical document and you know there's your side of the story as well of course so thank you for your candor in um in sharing that and uh putting a bit of it on the on the record for us it's great yeah it's a pleasure and i think um you know for many of us we had it was a it was a it was a of quite a fulfilling time but disappointing and in the final wash because a lot of people did believe in it and dare i say it again a lot of people did believe in me and were depending upon as you say the sort of model uh, to to make it work and you know i didn't and it it was catastrophic i think psychologically and emotionally and it, it, it did take me some years to get through um, the, on reflection, you know, the, the failure, the, 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 just owning the, owning the fault, owning the problem, owning, owning the, um, the way it turned out. Um, and, and, and just, you know, genuinely taking responsibility. Um, and, you know, which, which I do because, you know, that's, that's the way it is. Um, 
But it, it has also gave, given, it gave me, it started me on a journey that, that ended up in, in deep humility and a deep sense of um, gratitude to, to some people in my life that, that sort of turned it around and, and, you know, created relationships and opportunities that I would have never have dreamed of that came out of that, that the bottom of the roller coaster. Um, and it was, it was, it was a, um, a very difficult wash afterwards. It's tough being a pioneer, uh, but, but you know, that, that company and, and what you tried then uh, certainly, I think, sowed the seeds for what has come, come afterwards. And who knows that another, if the timing was a bit different, a couple of other uh, decisions were made, then, you know, you could still be here. That show is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's all in the timing. And I, you know, I don't have any regrets and I don't, I don't, I mean, I really hold, I don't hold any, any uh, grudges I'm totally forgiving of, of of any situation it just it is what it was what it was and it is what it is and um you know my wife still wants to kill but I'm I'm actually <laughs> actually um you know quite uh, reconciled um to to the, the, the situation and and of you know feel feel um so many good things have come out of the out of the out of the dip. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So, how did how did you arrive at the name Kookaburra? Yeah, I speak to because one, it was Australian. Two, it was you know they always remind me of laughter and song. So there was that sense, and I thought so. There used to be some Kookaburra music. There was a music um, publishing label, yeah, label, yeah. So it was all those a mixture of stuff, and I think I just you know where I was living at the time there were Kookaburras. It seemed like a I think the name is perfect. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where that came from. Um, yeah, it's funny. The more as I as I think about it, and as you've sort of we brought out, and I I I do um, I do sort of um, see it as as a, a a really quite a defining moment in another one, but but a a one that. Um, was a, a, a wake-up call, I think, to, for me, in terms of just my own view of the world and journey and view, view of myself. And um, I, I've sort of since then have been on quite a different sort of path in terms of the what I believe in, my values, um, how I how I deal with with other people, myself, you know, the situations I'm in. Um, with with much deeper humility and, and gratitude in instead of probably having that pioneering you know arrogant chutzpah that you need to sort of well I thought I needed to sort of push it along so it's it, it, you know it's um it's good Peter Cousins thank you this has been the most extraordinary conversation um, profiling your um triumphant turns in in musical theatre and then you know finishing off with a quite a somber discussion of of the troughs that can also be experienced in this this fabulous business so as we we started off the conversation i think we can agree that there certainly is no business like show business here here uh, thank you for your candor. Thank you for your passion um and um more strength to you as you uh, you continue on Thanks, Pete, very much. And I must say, it's been a great pleasure to um, 
to share with you. It's, uh, it's uh, you are a wonderful listener, and um, that is that is a um, uh, a deepened and meaningful skill because it um, it it uh, it kind of sets up an engagement that um, of trust and surrender. So, as they say, well done, you. It has certainly been a joy to feature Peter Cousins in this three-part conversation for The Stages podcast. His candour, passion and humour have certainly been appreciated in his illustration of the triumphs and troughs of a significant career in the performing arts in Australia. Thanks to Peter also for sharing the musical selections heard throughout our conversations. They come from the five albums he has recorded and all available from your good music stores, online and off. My guest over the recent three episodes, actor, leading man and producer, Peter Cousins. I know you've been enthralled by this conversation in the same way you are delighted by listening to previous episodes. So why not give the podcast a review and rating? You can do so by scrolling to the bottom of the episode page in the iTunes podcast directory. You've got a choice of five stars and an opportunity to leave a brief comment. We'd really appreciate it. It helps the podcast reach a wider listening audience. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.